There have been some film clips that I've seen of the early years of Martin Luther King in his um, beginning stages of nonviolent marching in Selma, Alabama. And these film clips have been very inspiring to me. And one of the ones that I love a lot is when he first started and he's in a church and the church is filled with people who have never gotten to go to school uh, and very poor. And he starts right out by saying that we all have the capacity to die for our freedom. And I thought that was uh, such an amazing thing that he could give them their dignity back by offering them this chance to die for their freedom. And we all have the capacity to die for our freedom. In this practice, it takes some patience. And the other aspect of this film clip that I've always uh, loved is he starts asking, how long? You know, how long is this uh, quest for freedom going to take? And, and then he says, not long. And then it becomes like a song between him and the audience. He says, how long? And he gets them to say, not long. And how long? Not long. You know. And how long do you think it's going to take for you to be free from greed, hatred, and delusion? <laughs> not long. <laughs> how long? <laughs> That wasn't what I was hearing today in the interview. <laughs> you know, we tend to want a quick fix. And it's really what we're getting ourselves into is a way of life. It's a practice. We want to get it over with. You know, how long? You know, it just seems like getting rid of greed, hatred, and delusion, it's just going to, it's impossible. We might as well just give up. You know, it's just going to take too long. And yet, when I saw this film clip, you know, where, where Martin Luther King was really encouraging, you know, uh, in a very physical and literal way, you know, that we can die for our freedom, which we're not asking you to do in a physical way, uh, but in terms of really seeing clearly that we're not separate is the same thing. And really understanding that a moment where we experience ourselves as separate is a temporary moment of identification. That's all. It's a temporary moment of identification with attachment or a temporary moment of identification with aversion or delusion. And are we willing to uncover the nuts and bolts of our suffering to be free? And if we are, if we do have the courage to do that, it gives dignity and compassion to our journey. How many times do we think this pace is too slow, or how long will it take, or it almost seems impossible? And when we're thinking like that, we're really caught in time. 
And I notice that whenever I get really caught up in time, it's the most painful. You know, so that when I'm at a peak of rushing, when I have such a long list for the day that I can't possibly do day after day, I get worn down by being so caught in time. Moments of mindfulness are timeless. Present time awareness, there's no hurry. We're free. There's no past, no future. I had never done uh, my practice in Asia, and because I've had the opportunity to be in Burma teaching the last three years, I've had a taste, at least in Upper Burma, uh, (laughs) it's literally like no time has passed since the Buddha died. It's extraordinary. I mean, 2,500 years have not happened there. And, you know, it's just like he walked by. It's that physical and that literal. You know, and the Buddhas, when it's cold, they put sweaters on them. You know, it's just incredibly different way of relating to time. Plus, not only has he not, you know, been away for a while, but the, in terms of the cosmology, the next Buddha will come sometime, but it's eons. It's, it's unimaginable to us how long that will be before a next Buddha will appear. Well, they're getting ready for it. <laughs> you know, literally, they're getting ready for it. So they have all the trees planted that are supposed to be there that he's going to get enlightened under. It's not going to be a Bodhi tree. It's this other kind of tree. They've got them planted everywhere. Uh, and I had the opportunity to go to this cave where this uh, man spent his whole life practicing to take care of the next Buddha. His aspiration is to be the next Buddha's attendant. And the vibe in that cave is so sweet. But it's like, for me, it stops my mind to even imagine that kind of concept of service. It's like, can you imagine introducing that kind of concept in a social work school here, you know, practicing for the next Buddhas? You know, that 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 kind of service, that kind of sense of time, it's mind-boggling. And so when, when I'm there, I don't get a sense that anybody is really struggling uh, with this impatience to get somewhere. You know, there's something held, there's something held so deeply in terms of that faith in mindfulness. It's such a faith in the practice and knowing that that timelessness, um, in that timelessness, uh, there's no hurry. And that it's possible, deeply possible. In a moment of timelessness, we have all the time in the world. We come to a retreat usually with some idea of freedom, that we do have the capacity for freedom. And a peak experience in meditation is often when mindfulness and energy and concentration, equanimity, come into some kind of balance. We're usually 
very accepting of what's happening, and we're not identified with our experience as being referring back to an I or me or mine. And seeing this clearly, relating to our experience in this way, will feel wonderful. It's very pure. When there's no sense of separate self, that means that there's merely no aversion present, or no attachment present, or no uh, delusion present. So when we talk about emptiness, one aspect of it is that it's empty of the experience of feeling like a solid separate self, because it's empty of aversion, empty of attachment, empty of delusion. That purity uh, is very powerful. And we want it to last forever. But it doesn't last forever. At some point, the energy will start to get a little low, or the equanimity, the perfect equanimity, will start to slide. And we'll have this thought, I don't want to lose this, or I want this to last forever. And if you have the thought, I don't want to lose this, it means you're already losing it. You know, you, you can feel you can feel yourself, uh, the, the purity leaving, and it means if there's a reaction that there's been some identification with that experience, even if we don't know it. In this place of purity is when we plan becoming a nun, or we plan our next retreat, or our next retreat, and we, we're very happy about talking to all our friends about it, or family. There's some way in which we have these scenarios where we're convincing people they should come to a retreat. The process of purification can often feel like a bad joke, because uh, the purity makes space for purification, and we tend to identify with the purity in practice as good practice, and we tend to identify with the purification process as bad practice. If you think of coming on a retreat like taking a dirty cloth and washing the dirty cloth in water, hopefully when you're washing a cloth, the dirt will come out. Yeah? You know, and so the dirt coming out in meditation practice is seeing more clearly where we suffer. So it's seeing more clearly the aversion. It's seeing more clearly the attachment and understanding the re, you know, how this happens is so important, because every time the purification happens, if we're thinking something's wrong, rather than something's good, we really don't have such a nice retreat. <laughs> when we're the most vulnerable, usually the purification will happen. Just as we kind of think, I want to stay here forever, I finally achieved this, and the energy goes down, you know, aversion or attachment is rolling in. If there's some kind of balance in the mind, we'll often feel transparent, (coughs) meaning transparency will feel like there's no resistance to the aversion or attachment whatsoever. And it's so clear that that when this appears, that this is also why we came to the retreat. You know, we see that suffering and it's like, oh, thank you. This is what I'm here for. But we don't always see it that clearly. You know, we often resist the purification, and we try to get back to the good practice. Or 
we often make an interpretation about ourselves in relationship to just what's happened. Doubt. I can't do this. This is too hard. Or feeling like a failure or worthless. We tend to kind of bottom out. We can fear that the purity wasn't real. We can often even invalidate that it happened. And we can get so identified with doubt that the purification can't even happen. So understanding the cycle that this is what happens on a retreat is really important. And if we start seeing the doubt, then usually we can stop it from becoming a self-hatred attack. You know, we'll tend to blame others or blame ourselves or blame the situation. And it's all because we want that purity back. So the path of purification is the path to travel. It is the way of life. And when we're fully free from suffering, you know, we'll know. And until that time, it takes some patience and courage. Whatever we've been struggling with, that's our teacher for the retreat. And in the power of mindfulness, what we're doing is not changing our experience, but changing how we relate to the experience. So we learn whatever is a new layer emerging for us to work with, we're learning how to bring wise attention to that experience. It's practice. You're practicing bringing wise attention to aversion. You're practicing bringing wise attention to attachment. Right after the Buddha's enlightenment, he was really reluctant to teach. Uh, He felt that there were very few humans who could be motivated to, to see the truth of life. But then he looked around and saw that there were beings who had that willingness, that were willing to call, to do what he called swim upstream, facing the truth of life and, and being willing to have that capacity to work toward our freedom takes courage. It's the courage to swim upstream. It's the courage to face life as it is. So a retreat isn't just a matter of experiencing tranquility or rest or reassurance. And we will have that experience at times of rest, of reassurance, of tranquility. But hopefully also we'll have this Um, willingness to face the truth of how things are. Classically, when we apply mindfulness with some kind of continuity, it's said that we'll understand change, anicca, so that the teaching is that anything that takes birth, everything conditioned, will pass away. And we'll face deeper and deeper levels of that. That's insight. You know, we apply mindfulness, and then at some point, insight will occur. And then the second 
aspect of life that we can come to understand is dukkha. The first is anicca. Dukkha, I think, um, is really important to remember, is so interrelated to change. You know, it's because everything's changing that we experience dukkha. And sometimes it's translated as <coughs> suffering. Um, I think it could take hours to try to really cover uh, dukkha. Uh, but it, it, it's the unpredictability of life. Because of change, we never know what's going to happen. And because of this, there's an um, unsatisfactoriness to existence because of that vulnerability. You know, and again, you have to keep relating it back to how fleeting experience really is. Or if you look closely at a breath, or a sound, or a taste, it's wildly ungraspable. You know, it's so insubstantial. Uh, sometimes we can almost experience dukkha as a kind of oppressiveness of existence itself. There's different ways in which we can experience it. Uh, But if we get very close to experience, we also can have this insight into anatta, the insubstantialness of experience. And sometimes I think that really is what pulls the thorn out of the heart. You know, it what allows us to really not take experience so personally. If you look closely at experience, what is it? If you see it clearly, it's hard to take it personally. A breath, a sound, a taste. It's the mind that's identifying. The Buddha taught that one way that we can free ourselves is to understand that with each moment of consciousness, there's also a corresponding pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. And this is where we can understand the nuts and bolts of suffering. And this is a mental feeling. It doesn't mean emotion. It means that with hearing, seeing, touching, smelling, tasting, thinking, there's also simultaneously in the mind a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. We have no control over it. It's changing. And one aspect of really sitting and walking in terms of slowing down is starting to understand that stream of change. And it, it's, it is wild. It's, it's amazing how fast it's going. <laughs> so I know most of you have heard it said, if we're not aware when something's pleasant, it inevitably will pass. And if we don't notice that we're liking it, we'll tend to get attached. And it's that holding on to life as it's moving. It's the holding on where we suffer. And because unpleasant feelings arise, and we, when we withdraw from them or push them away, it's that withdrawing or pushing away. That's that, it's that contraction of mind that's against the flow of life, the flow of the stream of change, and we suffer. Not seeing dukkha is dukkha. That's all. 
And we can understand change very deeply. I feel like I've looked at it very deeply. And yet I feel like there's so many lessons. Uh, My husband's mother is 89. And she's an incredibly gracious woman. She's been a teacher for me in my lifetime. And she has osteoporosis. And last year, her lower vertebra just crumpled. And then last month, the vertebra just above it crumpled. And her life has gone from just being, you know, independent. Her husband died the year before. It's been hard. But she's been very independent. Her mind was very sharp. And it was like instant bed, you know, just dramatic change. And of course I don't want her to suffer. You know, it's very hard for me to accept that that it's that difficult, that it's that unpleasant. And yet she is adjusting in such a gracious way. She's teaching me so much about going through the, that passage. It's like she doesn't say, <coughs> it doesn't hurt. You know, she doesn't say she wouldn't rather have a more full life. But she also is very gracious. It's like, I'll bring her some books, and she loves to read. And she'll be in bed, and she'll say, finally, I can just lie here and let everybody take care of me. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> finally, I have no responsibility. Or, you know, she'll shift it into a way of being that she also can live with. The first time I went to Burma, I was a guest and was treated as a guest, and it was fairly reasonable. (laughs) The second year I went, uh, the weather was extraordinarily hot, just unusually hot for a very hot time. Um, And because of the heat, the food was not that good, and the cook that I was attached to in terms of some semblance of ease wasn't there. Uh, And then the translator was really difficult, you know, gave me a really hard time. And after I left there, I just thought, you know, I don't want to go back. (laughs) And then when I went back, I thought, I'm never going to go back after this. I had this, just didn't want to do it. And this year, I fired the translator, actually, last year. So the translator was fantastic. The weather was as good as it gets. And the cook was fantastic. Uh, And it was just like going so well. And about halfway through the retreat, (laughs) this thought kept coming into my mind, it'll never be like this again. And I just started suffering. You can't believe it. I've never <laughs> suffered so much in having such a good time. You know, it's like the fear of losing it, you know, the f- wanting it to last was amazing. You know, and it, it all stemmed from really not really opening to the year before. You know, and then just really being attached to the pleasure of this experience. And I worked with it, and I worked with it, and it just seemed like, you know, so strong. And I had to just keep mustering that sense of acceptance of that wanting and acceptance of the wanting. And finally, by the last few days, it was like, okay, 
you know, that wanting was okay. I didn't have to buy into it. And it started to come and go by itself. But I couldn't believe how strong it was. (laughs) There's one way that I try to explain what mindfulness is in, in terms of a whole package. And some of you have heard me mention this, but I use the uh, four things, recognition, acceptance, interest, and non-identification. And this is not meant to be a checklist, but it's one way to kind of look at the experience of mindfulness. Uh, So say anger appears. What we're trying to say is that the experience of anger isn't the problem, but it is unpleasant. But it's the resistance to the anger that is very painful. So that recognition is so important. If we're able to recognize, oh, it's just anger, or it's simply anger. Just anger, it's not meant to minimize the experience, but somehow to remember that it's not you know, something that we have to get lost in once we see it for what it is. That's the courage. Courage is coming face to face with what's happening and knowing it. Oh, that's strong. It's just anger or it's simply anger. What's important is to remember that just by recognizing it, it still might be unpleasant or pleasant. And we want, if we're going to show up for life, we think it should, you know, the unpleasant should go away, right? If we're going to make all that effort to recognize anger, shouldn't it turn to pleasant? You know, it's just really interesting. You know, we, we, it's really hard for us to show up and it still be unpleasant. <laughs> and then acceptance. You know, oh, okay. Because it's appeared. Not because it's right or wrong, but because it's there. It's the truth of things. The anger has appeared. And Christina talked about acceptance beautifully last night. If we're identified, then the experience will f- refer back to a separate self. So it, even if we're accepting, if we're still thinking, I am angry, then we're, there's still going to be a hook in it. And this is what I mean by the thorn when we can finally pull that thorn out, it's through understanding. It's understanding that it's not mine. It's just an experience passing through. Just like a cloud goes through the vast sky, we can relate to any experience, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, as a cloud passing through. We don't have to take it personally. If we're identified, we have to do something with it. I have to do something with the anger. Usually we're trying to get rid of it. But we start messing with things. We fiddle with things when they're mine or I. If they're mine or I, we're usually motivated for a quick fix. We want to get rid of it. So if we're motivated to do something with what is appearing with aversion or attachment, it's just reinforcing aversion and attachment and we make the knots tighter rather than loosening them up. So, there's a purity 
that happens when all four of these aspects of mindfulness are present. You know, so we might be recognizing, accepting, but maybe we're not that interested. Interest really makes a difference. And I find that when interest appears, especially when something is unpleasant, I understand um, what rapture or joyful interest is in this, in this tradition. Because it's like to be interested in something unpleasant is such an achievement for us. Can we be interested in, in greed? or attachment? Can we be interested in aversion? It's interest, being interested in how we get hooked, how we suffer. But we tend to want to get rid of them before we understand. We want to let go before we experience. You know, so it takes a patience and a willingness to really be with how we are. <laughs> you know, let it, let it, let it, uh, let it unravel. If all four are present, then life just moves on. And we don't have to do anything with with what's appearing. If you let aversion appear, it will disappear. The nature of things is to appear and disappear. Nothing stays. But if we get attached or push away, they get stronger because we're, we're blocking the flow of how life is. You know, and this takes time to sink in. So try to have patience. You know, it's like we want to be totally liberated overnight. Uh, Just take your time. Really get to know where you are. Beware of quick fixes. One of my favorite things that the Buddha said is, when the mind is restless, he or she knows that the mind is restless. Pretty simple. You know, we're not expected to do any more than that. If the mind is aversive, we know that the mind is aversive. We're not, you know, trying to do something with it. We're just trying to know it. We don't try to figure anything out. So what we're saying is that mindfulness is the courage not to deceive ourselves. And that's all we can do. There's no need to beat ourselves up for aversion and attachment appearing. It took me so long to stop running from aversion. I can't tell you. I mean, it was like such, it just seemed like it was never going to stop. And one of the uh, heaven and hell practices for me is sound. You know, and if the sounds are pleasant, like, you know, the sound of a thrush, you know, sends me into ecstasy. But then if there's a jackhammer, you know, I'm in excruciating pain, you know, so that, and I never understood it. And it took many retreats for me to start getting what was going on. And I remember actually a retreat I went to, the same retreat in Wales with um, Christina and Christopher. I remember coming in their interview rooms and there was this, they had these alarm clocks that ticked so loud. (laughs) And they slept in their interview rooms at this place. The old days, you know, were not so easy. So they slept in the rooms they interviewed people in. And they had these clocks that just sounded to me like a bomb was about to go off. And I kept thinking, how do they sleep in here? (laughs) Uh, 
And I had years of the quest for the perfect travel clock, you know, the perfect <laughs> alarm clock. And I sat in my room for my retreats for many, many years, so I was trying to find a clock that didn't make sound, right? Because the aversion would come up and it would drive, it would drive me crazy. Uh, so I would go to these stores and I'd try to be doing this without the people in the store looking at me or the, you know, the help looking. And I'd have these clocks and I'd, I'd be holding them up to my ear. And I'd go to the person behind the counter and I'd say, does this make sound? You know, can you hear this? And they're like, no. And I'd say, it's really loud, isn't it? You know, and it became this kind of obsession to find the perfect clock. I never could. So one retreat, you know, I would literally be sitting in my room when I do retreats, and I'd have the clock under a pillow. And then at a certain point in the retreat, I'd get so quiet that I'd have to put a blanket over the pillow. And then <laughs> I'd have to borrow <laughs> a blanket. And I'd come in my room, and I'd have this pile of stuff over this little teeny alarm clock. And it was so humiliating. Uh, so I finally decided, I'm going to face this, you know. <laughs> and I uncovered them all. And I had days of sweat, just, you know, I would just <laughs> sit through this aversion like you wouldn't believe. And finally, I could work with it. You know, but that's how hard it was for me. It was like the sound of the ticking was so unpleasant, and I would just not be willing to face that I didn't want it. I kept getting caught and that it was out there. It was the sound. And really, the reaction was happening in here. But I couldn't just open to that experience of not wanting. And it took just kind of this incredible determination uh, until finally the aversion came and go, came and went, the sound came and went. And, you know, I think it's really important for people to hear that there's progress <laughs> on the path. It's like, that does not bother me. You know, and sounds generally, from, from starting with it being so difficult in my practice, it's not a big issue for me. When I teach in Burma, you know, there's often, um, you know, there's, there's not a lot of um, history with electricity there. And when the village has a party, it's, you know, it's on the loudspeakers. You know, they don't have television, radio, and so the party is broadcast all night, and we hear it. And, it, and it's, it's so wonderful for me to see that it doesn't even bother me. And people will come in, and they're like, ah! <laughs> no, this is really, we say something drives us crazy. What is it that drives us crazy? It's aversion. It's attachment. So it's very important for us to start to get that whenever we're thinking, you know, some person is driving us crazy. Or, you know, maybe it's an attraction, not an aversion. Maybe we're really attracted to somebody. We think that we're going after the pleasure out there. But it's actually a moment of seeing and something pleasant. There's a time when I wanted to um, take some cake crumbs and put it behind a glass frame and frame it and put it on the wall. Because we go after the crumbs. You know, it's like we want the cake, but really, if we're after something pleasant, the pleasant feeling's happening here. 
And we get caught over and over in going after something outside when it's really happening inside. And it's the same with unpleasant. So we're trying to control. A moment of aversion is a moment of control. A moment of attachment is a moment of control. And the controlling mind is so painful. And of course, you know, Christina and I can't spend the whole retreat reassuring you that this does not mean passivity or not taking action when we need to set a limit. But on a deep level, it's essential to understand this, the nuts and bolts of suffering. Otherwise, we're just being driven by pleasure and pain. We're just victims of the pleasure-pain syndrome. And we don't have a clue. So the Buddha taught not seeing dukkha is dukkha. Not understanding this is suffering. The more you understand it, the more it's possible. And I've seen so much change in myself. You know, There's so much peace and so much happiness compared to what was. And I see it so much in other people. And it's a matter of putting in your time. It's taking your practice seriously. And it's really taking your spiritual life seriously. I notice whenever I go back out into the world, I make lists. And my spiritual life goes to the bottom. And no one's out there saying to me, Michelle, (laughs) we really want you to take time for yourself today. You know, and no matter what, we want you to have a nice walk. We want you to, you know, take some time to sit. It's not like that. You know, there's so many demands in my time. No one wants me to take time off for myself. You know, it's like I have to really make the time and sometimes be ruthless about it if I need it. But, you know, the mind will deteriorate if you don't take the time. And I think that, I was talking about this in one of my groups today, but I think it's extraordinary that culturally we're so clean. You know, we're so good at showers, and we're so good at clean hair, and we're so good at washing our cars, and we're so good at cleaning the house. And we don't get the sense that cleaning our heart is important. You know, the heart-mind being the same thing. We don't get the sense that purification is important. And if we go day after day, month after month, year after year, without looking at ourselves, we get really schmutzy. (laughs) It just clogs up. And then we need a rotor-rooter. And we come on retreat, and you wonder why the first three days was hell. It's because you were all clogged up. You know, the aversion and attachment, you know, it's like, if we're not mindful, we're like flypaper. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it's just <laughs> sticking and sticking and sticking. And if you don't daily clean out, it accumulates. And it gets to the point where it accumulates in the body. And I'm just trying to be honest. It's like, why don't we get this idea that we need cleansing? Where did we lose it? You know, where did we lose the sense culturally that we need a contemplative practice? That we need some quiet time? And certainly for most women, to take the time for oneself even requires more effort. 
You know, the conditioning is so much to take care of others. Everything is changing. High energy, low energy, high energy, low energy. I was at a retreat last year in New Mexico, and it's a wilderness area above 9,000 feet, so quite um, vulnerable to different weather patterns, very cold at night. Uh, And the first few days of the retreat was record rain. I don't know, it hadn't been like that, you know, since 90 years or 140 years or something. You know, one of those stories. And at this retreat, the, you know, the students are in tents, mostly. And uh, I stay pretty far from where the little ranch house is where we sit. Um, and, I, and there's no electricity, so that, you know, at night I have to use a flashlight. And it's a long trip in the dark when it's been pouring for days and days and days to the meditation hall. And I tend to do the late night sitting, it's something I like to do. It had been raining, raining, and the mud was so deep. You just, it was so deep. I, it's like I couldn't walk on the road. I'd slip and fall, and I had to walk through the woods and hold on to trees. Um, so that night I came into the late night sitting, and I think one person showed up, <laughs> which was really disconcerting to me that I made the effort to get there. So I was sitting there with this one person, with the rain just pouring down. And so I got out, you know, got the big boots on to try to make the trek back, grabbing under trees. My flashlight fell and went out. And I just was, I was pitying myself. I was feeling so bad for myself. You know, I was thinking, it went from pity to wanting to go home. It's like, I want to go home. I want to go home. (laughs) I want to go home. It's so much better at home. All the way back to my uh, cabin. The next night, it had stopped raining that afternoon. Um, completely different experience. The stars were out. Uh, I saw shooting stars. And I'm walking up the same place, and I'm going, I wish I could stay here next week. <laughs> and then, <laughs> next week. And it was incredible. Right where my flashlight went out, and I was convinced I never wanted to teach there again, and I wanted to go home. The next night, you know, I wish the retreat was longer. I wish I could stay longer. Have you done that? <laughs> you know, the mind is so fickle. You know, it's just that incredible reaction to change. So mindfulness, facing the truth of I want, I want, I don't want, I don't want, that everything conditioned is impermanent and that we never know what's going to happen is our only hope for dignity and freedom and peace with how things are. Why is it on a retreat that we only encourage you, we would only encourage you to to practice when it was easy. Why do we encourage you to practice, you know, before breakfast, throughout the day, into the night? And why is the schedule designed so that you go through the ups and downs? Why would we encourage you 
you know, to do that instead of just sit when it's really going well, take a nap when it's really going bad, over and over. You know, why do you think the schedule's designed so that you really go through everything? You know, and this is really important to ask. You know, we're asking you to go through the whole show. And the reason is honesty and purification of motivation. You know, we're meant to become mindful of everything, not just about what we want to be mindful of. You know, so every movement, every posture, eating, frustration, every feeling, you know, pride, boredom, loving-kindness, gratitude, sloth and torpor. It's like we're undressing life completely. You know, we're revealing how it really is so that we understand ourselves totally, completely, and learn how to work with all aspects of ourselves so that wise attention can be applied everywhere. You know, otherwise it's not pure and it wouldn't be practical and it wouldn't be a complete medicine. So mostly I think the practice takes a lot of patience a lot of courage, and to really remember that present time awareness is timeless. And and when we get the glimpses of that, we really can have the faith to keep going and know that it is possible to liberate ourselves and all beings. It's really important to know that. And I'd like to end with a poem by Joseph Buchak uh, in the memory of poet William Stafford. And it's called a log. And think of the log as being the present moment. A log. There is a log, quiet in the woods. Life on it, within it, all around it. But we step over it on our way elsewhere. We don't even think about being that log. We want to be bright lights stars, in the sky, another sun, or at least an eagle, flying, not at rest. Instead of that log, we try to pull ourselves, sheer force of will, into the sky. But we need it, of course, that log. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.